This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. Business Radio's 2020 Real Estate Outlook. Here's your host, Sam Shandon. Welcome to this special edition of the Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, the Larry and Clara Silverstein Chair in Real Estate at NYU's Shack Institute of Real Estate. I'm also a proud four-time alumnus of the University of Pennsylvania and the Wharton School. Each fall, the Urban Land Institute and PwC release the Emerging Trends in Real Estate Report, by all accounts the industry's most widely read summary of real estate investor sentiment. The latest iteration of the report is just recently off the press, just in time for our special 2020 Market Outlook episode. Here with me to discuss the report's findings in a now annual tradition, I am delighted to be joined once again by the report's co-publisher and a widely recognized commentator on real estate, housing, capital markets, and the retail sector and economy, Mitch Rochelle. Mitch, thanks for joining me again on the program. Thanks so much, Sam. Really appreciate it. I look forward to it each and every year. Well, let's jump right in. 2020 is just around the corner. Big picture, how are investors feeling about the economy and the real estate sector? What's interesting, Sam, just to give you a little bit of perspective for your audience, we start the survey process uh, in the summer uh, for a release of the report in the fall. And this year, 2,200 folks responded to our survey, which is phenomenal. I think when we first uh, uh, started this thing, we you could count them in one hand, and now it's uh, it's a small mob. Um, and those are every possible walk of life within real estate around the globe. So we tap into our partners, ULI, Urban Land Institute, and we survey their members. So we have a really big uh, pool to, to pull insights from. But one of the questions we ask every year and we've talked about this in past years on your show, we asked the question, what are the prospects for profitability for the industry for the upcoming year? And we don't define that. We let them sort of be in the eye of the responder. But what's really fascinating is we did this, as I said earlier, during the late summer. And if you think about what was going on then, there was the R word was in the news every possible day, uh, not just on business channels, but in you know the nightly news. And there was talk of it constantly. So, why would real estate folks think any differently? Well, actually, they did. And when we look at the results to that question, um, we asked the participants to evaluate the prospects for profitability for the industry for the upcoming year on a one to five scale, sort of like your Uber rating. And the results this year were virtually identical to what they were the year before. So in the face of all of that potential adversity, and we all know that the economy is the engine that drives the success of the real estate industry, why with all of those headwinds potentially were the real estate folks um, as optimistic this year as they were in years past? And obviously, we can unpack that throughout the um, the, the course of the segment here. But interestingly enough, they, they are upbeat and ignoring all the noise about the economy. Now, I actually have that chart in front of me. I see about 80% of respondents said that the outlook for firm profitability is good to excellent. Virtually zero said that it was abysmal to poor. We're going to be referring back to this report time and time again during the show. Uh, Mitch, could you just tell listeners where they're going to be able to find it? Yeah, absolutely, Sam. So it's pwc.com forward slash U.S. forward slash E-P-R-E. So it's pwc.com 
forward slash US forward slash ETRE. Please don't do it while you're driving, people. But uh, that's where you can get a copy of the report. So the next thing I noticed in the report is that although the industry overwhelmingly feels like the outlook is good to excellent, uh, they're also saying that it's not necessarily a buyer's market. Uh, one of your emerging trends barometers shows that, uh, it, well, you've asked uh, investors and respondents, is it a buy, hold, sell market? And, and once again this year, uh, it looks like more people think it's a sell uh, than a buy. How do those two things fit together? Well, you know, but I think it's just that same as a matter of pricing. Um, so, if you're a holder, you feel like the prospects are good. And by the way, as I said before, we don't define what it means when we say, what are the prospects for profitability? So, if you're a broker, your prospects for profitability are different than if you're an owner. If you're a property manager, it's different. If you're another service provider, it's different. So, um, the view of the, the 80% that said good to excellent really come from a lot of different lenses. But I think the buy, hold, sell is really a function of timing and what the pricing is like in the market, what are yields like in the market. So people are thinking, wow, these prices are pretty high, maybe I'll sell. And people who are buyers are saying, you know what, these prices are pretty high, maybe I'll wait. So um, that's really sort of more of a transactional view than a more um, broad view of the industry as a whole. Would it be fair to say that part of the reason people are feeling uh, pretty confident about uh, you know, the, the prospects for profitability is because the underlying performance of the assets, the income that they're producing, uh, we're in a pretty good place as an industry? Yeah, and uh, one of the things when I'm on the road speaking um, to ULI district councils, I have a couple of interesting slides. I think they're also on my Twitter handle um, that I've tweeted them. But if you look at the performance of real estate and use cap rates, I, every time I speak, I say, you know, I'm not going to say cap rate, and then I inevitably do. But um, if you look at cap rates and you compare cap rates to um, the inverse of the S&P 500 um, multiples. So if you take the multiple and turn it into a fraction by turning it upside down, and turn, um, if you compare cap rates, which are a fraction, to um, the 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 forward multiple on the S and P 500, you'll realize that returns on real estate are actually stronger than returns on the S and P 500. So, and and I would argue, and you can argue with me, uh, Sam, but you know, cap rates in the S and P 500 multiple are kind of similar in that they take future earnings growth into into account. So, real estate's outperforming and historically has been and is less lumpy than equities, and I think people are starting to realize that, especially in a period of falling interest rates. So, yeah, one of the other things that I want to ask about in that regard, and, and this probably comes back to your point about timing, uh, respondents to the survey overwhelmingly feel like equity capital is oversupplied right now, both in 2019 and 2020. Just give us some context for what it is that's driving that thinking. Well, I, and I think the number that we quoted a report is $211 billion worth of dry powder sitting on the sidelines. And there's a lot of different uh, ways of getting at that number. But if it's $200 billion plus, that's a lot. Um, it, think about a lot of that money. Um, you have private equity, you have um, pension advisors. There are a lot of fiduciaries that are holding on to that money. And if you're a fiduciary, and while you may feel the fundamentals for real estate are strong, good, excellent, you know, pick your positive adjective, 
However, you're also buying at what feels like market highs, whether it be price per square foot, whether it be you know cap rate relative to past, whether it be you know some other metric. And I think a lot of buyers are sort of waiting. It's no different than the phenomenon of stock market investors when the S&P 500 keeps hitting new highs. They feel good about the, the company or they feel good about a sector or they feel good about an index, but they're very fearful to pull the trigger because they don't want to be the one who buys at the top of the market. And then, you know, three weeks later, the market slides. So there is just a lot of um, investor um, trepidation, not necessarily about um, the asset class, because the the prospects that they see are strong. But I think it's one of timing. And what they'll find, though, is if that money's sitting in cash, um, it's not earning anything. And ultimately, you'll find buyers start pulling the trigger uh, because they they have to. Right now, this is obviously you know very, very high level, broad brushstroke. Uh, we can dig into tremendous detail. Let's just go one layer in for a second. Um, when we're looking at the different you know property types, retail obviously is something that investors are looking at with a bit of hesitation. Um, you know, industrial, I think it's fair to say, is the asset class that is probably most in favor amongst uh, investors. Uh, how would you characterize differences across the asset classes right now? Well, let's stick with those two, um, and I'll start with the order in which you presented them. What's happening to retail is I think the transformation of retail is finally happening. And as I travel the country, as do you, and, and talk to investors, and I do a lot of panels at uh, different uh, Urban Land Institute events, ultimately the conversation revolves around retail. And I've spoken to a lot of developers who are more bullish from a development perspective about retail than they have been in the past, but it's more about redevelopment than it is ground-up construction. Because if you think about retail, whether it be a strip center, a power center, uh, even an enclosed mall, in many cases, and I don't want to say most, but I'll say many, geographically, they're in the right market and in the right neighborhood or section of that market. The problem is what's going on inside the box um, may have a challenge. Uh, big box retail bankruptcies, uh, inline tenant bankruptcies, um, but still people need the space. So it's really going through a transformation of alternative use. Um, and one of the things we're seeing, and we didn't per se highlight it as a trend, although we, we touched it on it a couple of times in the report, which is the, the fact that the healthcare industry has gone retail. And whether that be urgent care, whether it be specialty medical practices, um, physical therapy. But if you think about it in many respects, a lot of that is a retail trade. And you're also seeing M&A activity in the, the pharmacy industry or the, you know, the drugstore business. And they're doing more and more healthcare providing. You know, my sons, both of my kids are college students, and when they think they have strep, which is, you know, basically weekly, um, where do they go? Do they go to some clinic that's in a drugstore? So, I mean, more and more you're seeing that care is being provided, not just picking up uh, prescriptions. So, 
Um, that be, has become the big adaptive reuse for a lot of retail. And then the other end of the spectrum, you mentioned industrial, and obviously it goes without saying that that is the distribution arm for retail, whether it be electronic retail or brick-and-mortar, stick-and-brick retail. The one thing I'll say about um, industrial is it's a very crowded trade. Um, its popularity is uh, ubiquitous at this point, and everybody's chasing it. And uh, that's no surprise. That's why we're seeing more and more investors looking with a somewhat squinty, cautious eye at retail to try to figure out how to turn retail into something relevant for today's uh, uh, use. If you're just joining us, you're listening to a special 2020 Outlook edition of the Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, and my guest is Mitch Rochelle, partner at PwC and co-publisher of the influential ULI PwC Emerging Trends in Real Estate Report. Mitch, as you mentioned, we're both crisscrossing the country. Looking at your top 10 markets in this report, you know, Austin as top of the list, Raleigh, Durham, Nashville. Probably the thing that's uh, most striking for me being in New York City is that of these top 10, only one market is in the Northeast or Midwest of the United States. That's Boston. Uh, What's going on? What's driving uh, some of what we're seeing here? Well, a couple of moving parts, and some of them are moving fast and some of them are moving slow. But if you look at it, you've got the top four there, Austin, Raleigh, Durham, Nashville, and Charlotte, in low-tax or no-tax jurisdictions. If you look across all of them, you see a lot of Florida and a lot of Texas. So that is part of the equation, which I'll come back to. But if you look at it more closely and try to figure out what what do they have in common, there's a concentration of skilled labor in each of those markets, and there's a diversity of the employment base in each of those markets. Um, So, Austin, you obviously have UT. Raleigh-Durham, you have no shortage of universities. Nashville, you have Vanderbilt and others. Charlotte, you have all of the schools that are in North Carolina, um, you know, in the state. Boston, you obviously have a plethora of um, academic institutions up there. So, a little bit is a study-and-stay phenomenon, but with skilled, when you have the unemployment rate, we have 18 consecutive months of an unemployment rate below 4%. The unemployment rate set a 40 or 50 year low, depending on how you, which unemployment rate you want to look at. Um, so, labor market is tight. Um, the employers are going where the people are. Those also happen to be low tax environments. They also happen to be places that are affordable to do business. So there's a lot of secret sauce going on there. And that's what's driving those real estate markets, those micro economies. Um, and it's all um, interconnected. And if you go down the rest of the list, you have Dallas, which I believe was number one last year. Orlando, which broke into the top 10. Interesting thing about Orlando is when people think of Florida, they think of old people moving there. Orlando as a MSA is getting younger and younger every single year. And if you do a Google map view of it, you'll realize that it's not just theme parks, that there's a tremendous amount of commerce having nothing to do with theme parks that goes on in Orlando. Um, Atlanta is a very affordable place to do business. Um, And then Los Angeles and Seattle, which are our two West Coast uh, cities, but they're at the bottom of the top 10. There, too, is a tremendous concentration of talent and um, a diversity of employment base. Um, So, L.A. is all about content, and if you look at the amount of money that's going to be spent on content uh, with any number of streaming services, that's really the hub of that. 
And then if you move up to number nine in Seattle, that's a big technology story and remains a technology story. But it was only a couple of years ago that Seattle was number one, and it's fallen to the bottom of the top ten, largely because of the um, cost of living and the cost of doing business that's gotten very high there. So talk to me about the places that are missing on the list. I would think about something like the Bay Area, you've, where the, you do have some of the some of the features you've mentioned. Right? There's a talented workforce. Uh, you know, it uh, you know it's uh, there, there's a lot of commerce. There's a diversity of employment drivers. Uh, is it the affo- enormous affordability challenges that they face in Northern California uh, that are leading it to drop off the list? Yeah, hundred percent, Sam. It's really affordable. I mean, I think the median house price is closing in on a. Million Million dollars. I mean, that, I don't know. There's nothing about that that screams affordable. Um, and um, there's competition. Um, Seattle's a competitor for um, San Francisco in terms of or the greater San Francisco area. Um, and uh, San Jose is a separate market in our survey, uh, which has different dynamics, but equally is uh, inaffordable for many. So really, it's an affordability story. Uh, San Francisco comes in, I believe, at number 12, and sandwiched in between the two of them was Tampa. Uh, that made it to the top 10, I think, last year for the first time. Uh, and Tampa's the, the opposite side of the spectrum. It is a story about affordability. And I think at the end of the day, people are going to land where they can afford to live. And the jobs in a market like we have today are going to chase those people. And where the jobs are going, that's where there's going to be demand drivers for real estate. When I'm looking at this great map inside the report that shows net migration, where are people leaving in the country and where are they going to? Again, as a you know a, a Northeasterner, um, the, the map looks a little troublesome for me. New York, Illinois um, are both uh, you know, losing population. Overall, the Northeast and Midwest uh, you know, look fairly weak. The state that are taking folks uh, where we're seeing net in migration are places like Nevada and Arizona, the Carolinas, Florida, to a lesser degree, Texas. Folks are leaving California. Uh, back to your point about taxes. I mean, there's this affordability issue you know, in, in markets in, you know, along the West Coast, you know, places like New York uh, that you know, are, are really you know, proving to be very challenging. Uh, at the same time, uh, the, these are states, uh, I think of the example of Illinois, as well, where um, there are fiscal challenges that may be leading to uh, scenarios where the states are not tax competitive. Well, if, if, uh, there's a couple of different points there. One is, if you look at domestic migration, so this has nothing to do with people coming into the country. This has to do with people who are in the country just moving around, sort of on a same-store sales basis, if you will. From 2010 to 2018, to the end of 2018, there are over a million people that have moved to Florida and over a million people that have moved to Texas from other states. There's also a chart in the book that tells a part of the story, which is California is ranked, and this is according to the Tax Foundation, ranked 49th in tax, uh, individual income tax uh, inefficiency, and New Jersey is number 50, and New York is number 48. So many would argue that this is all about the lost of the state and local tax deduction or the capping of the state and local tax deduction at $10,000, which didn't go into effect until the tax year of 2018. The bill was signed at the law at the end of uh, calendar 2017. Um, the fact of the matter is that net migration story that I just shared, that dates back to 2010. So that force of nature may have accelerated a little bit towards in the last year. But the fact of the matter is that uh, 
that tax inefficiency is something that's driving uh, people to think twice about where they live. Number one on the list, according to the Tax Foundation, of uh, tax efficiency for individuals is Florida. So uh, I think people are voting with their um, the net take-home paychecks um, a little bit and focusing on where they want to live um, based upon uh, you know how far the dollar goes um, in in the household on an after-tax basis. Um, and this again, I think, is part of the calculus of where people uh, ultimately will live. The question you didn't ask is, how do those cities and states deal with the booming population? Uh, On the one hand, they benefit from it because they're going to pick up more tax revenue, um, um, largely in the form of property taxes, uh, because there's no income tax, um, and maybe corporate income tax they'll pick up because those businesses are are thriving down there. Um, But on the other hand, the cost of infrastructure is skyrocketing, because if you go to Austin, or if you go to Nashville, or if you drive between Palm Beach County and uh, Dade County, uh, Dade County is where Miami lives in Florida, during rush hour, Get ready to uh, sit in a lot of traffic. If you're just joining, uh, you're listening to a special 2020 Outlook edition of the Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by Wharton. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, and my guest is Mitch Rochelle, partner at PwC and co-publisher of the ULI PwC Emerging Trends in Real Estate Report. Mitch, since you mentioned infrastructure costs skyrocketing um, and sort of you know places like Florida having to deal with very rapid growth in population, what is the real estate industry saying our infrastructure priority should be right now? Well, you know what's interesting? It depend- that varies, Sam, from market to market, because in states like Florida, um, if you want to build something new from the ground up, you have to consider the impact of that. And in many cases, um, the state tries to get you, the developer, to uh, shoulder some of the burden of the infrastructure that your project will incrementally require, whether it be schools, whether it be roads, whether it be other kinds of infrastructure. Other places like Texas are a little bit more pro-development than Florida from a regulation perspective. Um, however, you know that's going to vary municipality to municipality. Um, so part of it gets borne by the developer if it's new construction, um, but um, part of it just becomes a community um, obligation. And if um, legislators, executives, you know, whether it be county government, state government, what city government, whatever it is, um, all branches of government need to, in my view, embrace the fact that over time they're benefiting more and more from this massive migration to their market and figure out how to get ahead of it as best they can. Because at some point, quality of life starts influencing people's decisions about where to live. And it's not purely a financial decision. And sitting in bumper-to-bumper traffic is a solution. The other thing is the public-private partnership model, um, which we've talked about you know, sort of ad nauseum for a while. But I mentioned going from, um, you know, South Florida North to South Florida South. Um, But if you go from Broward County, which is where Fort Lauderdale is, to Dade County, which is where Miami is, they've widened the Interstate 95. And in the process of widening it in the middle, they put a high-speed lane that is surge-priced, but you can avoid traffic if you're willing to pay for it. 
So one of the models is in the public-private partnership is to have almost a for-profit model that if traffic is really, really bad, you don't want to wait in it. You can pay 30 bucks and not have to sit in traffic, and you can fly through. And you know, as you go through your, you know, I think it's a Sun Pass tab or whatever it's called down there in Florida, it's like the version of the Easy Pass. Um, it just gets hit, and you know, you get a bill for it. Um, we're seeing that more and more with new construction that there's always an option to not wait in line but to pay more um sort of the amazon prime <laughs> version of uh of uh of traveling so that's what happens when you have public private partnerships but the market will bear it because people are willing to pay to not sit in traffic are, are we seeing more of the infrastructure projects, uh, you know, the, the the energy behind them uh, coming at the the local and state level than necessarily the federal level? Yeah, because the, the, I think there's a realization that not much is happening or going to happen at the federal level. So um, ultimately, the obligation to fix local problems is in fact local. Um, what's interesting, though, and I'm heading back to Tampa to speak in January, but I remember when I was there last year, what, what was fascinating was all the talk was about paying for some of the local projects with consumption taxes. And while Florida prides itself in being income tax-free, you know, obviously the cost of projects needs to get paid for somehow, and they were starting to layer on consumption taxes. And you get into a lot of theoretical arguments about consumption taxes and whether or not they're too regressive and so forth. So uh, I think we're going to start to see in Texas and Florida different types of taxes that will fund some of these projects, but they probably won't be the institution of a statewide uh, income tax because um, that's probably a political third rail for most politicians. Uh, for those of the folks uh, who are listening in who aren't necessarily tax experts, what do you mean by consumption tax? So a consumption tax is like a sales tax um, um, or any kind of tax that's on the a transaction. Um, so uh, you you rent a bike from one of those bike things, or you went, rent one of those godforsaken scooters, um, part of the price that goes uh, is a tax. Uh, you take a rideshare car, um, part of the price that you pay is a tax. So it's basically a transaction-level tax. And most people would think of it in, in uh, consumption tax as a sales tax. Um, but uh, for those of you who travel around the world, you're familiar with the most popular form of consumption tax around the world, which is a VAT or a value-added tax. Um, but obviously, we don't have national value-added tax in this country, but it is at the discretion of municipalities to levy any kind of tax they want, and many of them are starting to up the sales tax or other kinds of transaction taxes to pay for the infrastructure. One of the things that I really want to dig in on, in the case of something like Florida, how are real estate investors thinking about climate change and the potential threat to some of the real estate investments that they're making? I wouldn't say that they're ignoring it altogether, but a couple of years ago, one of the themes that came up in um, some of our interviews dealt with rising sea levels. And I think that when we're in a big hurricane uh, pattern during the summer, a summer, and we're doing our research during the summer and doing our interviews, and if it's if if 
climate is monopolizing the the news cycle when you're doing interviews and people are filling out their surveys, it tends to leach in uh, more heavily. But I would tell you, if you just look at it over time, real estate investors aren't sort of leading with concerns about the climate um, or um, leading with um, you know concerns about sustainability and the environment in general. Um, but when it's a requirement, they'll deal with it. Um, so, uh, you didn't ask me about ESG standards, but th- that's similar. When capital starts requiring you to concern yourself with uh, sustainability, then real estate investors will deal with it. So, I wouldn't say that they're, they don't care about social issues, they don't care about environmental issues, but they tend to be influenced by um, not the environment, but more their capital ecosystem. So uh, you mentioned ESG. That's actually the next thing I do want to ask you about. Start from the beginning. What does it stand for? Oh, geez. Environment, uh, sustainability, and governance, I think. Society. 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 So uh, let's start with the environment piece, because the way you framed it uh, makes me think that uh, investors are not thinking about it in terms of uh, the, uh, uh, you know, protecting their assets. Um, you know, are they concerned that sea levels might rise, not from a social perspective, but in a way that might actually threaten the viability of their building? Um, I, I think, and, and this is more my view of talking to market participants than the, those in emerging trends per se. Um, so forgive the caveat. But if I look at um, lead standards for buildings, okay, and you know the test of gr- how green a building is, when, when those were first introduced sort of around the world and, and they came to the United States, and we talked about that you know, with folks during the survey process, and this is probably you know, almost 10 years ago, most people said, yeah, don't care. And it wasn't until tenants started showing up and said, well, if the building is not platinum, we're not going to sign that lease. Then all of a sudden, real estate folks started to care. And the ESG standards, so let's stick with the environment for a second, that's, that's very similar, which is while they may socially care, don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that, uh, that real estate folks don't care about these things, but if you look at their behavior, their investing behavior, it, the investor this investing behavior tends to be heavily influenced by what counterparties or people they're doing business require. So, yes, I think real estate investors may um, care about um, whether or not the building could be underwater. Um, however, they're, they're probably not going to do anything about it until local regulations tell them where they can put it or how high it has to be off the ground or uh, what the windows need to be look, li- look like on the first couple of stories. Uh, you know, they're, they're not necessarily leading with it because the market may not bear the increased cost if they do it voluntarily. Right. Now, you mentioned sort of when investors require it. You know, in, in discussions with a lot of pension funds out there, particularly the public pension funds, I feel like more of them are requiring uh, that buildings be LEED certified or that there be some other kind of signal about uh, the uh, energy efficiency and environmental uh, sort of your friendliness of the building if they're going to invest in it. Is that a trend that you're seeing with institutional capital? 100%. So we're seeing that now global capital 
tends to care. So if you think about institutional ownership of real estate, um, there may be big names who are the asset managers, the advisors, the money managers, you know, pick the name of the firm. But if you go to the plan sponsors, which are the, the, the pension plans themselves, who are the economic owner of the property, then you go down below to who the stakeholders are in that pension fund. It matters to the, the, the pensioners. It matters to the organization whose um, pension it may be, whether it be corporate or public employees. It's starting to matter, and uh, for good reason, it's starting to matter. And capital starting to change the requirements, and that's changing the behavior of real estate market participants. Um, so. Um, I, I wouldn't say that they're going to uh, real estate folks are going to lead. I remember a gazillion years ago, um, my aunt, who uh, you'd probably refer to as a social justice warrior today, although she's in her late 90s, so she was ahead of the curve. Uh, she would fit nicely on some college campuses right now. But we were, I was in a city, and I had to do a uh, – we were there for a family get-together, and I had to do a site visit for a client, so she decided to tag along. And she was commenting on all of the things that didn't exist in this uh, gated community that I was just doing a drive-by site visit of. And I said, all of those things are wonderful, but who's going to pay for them? Um, and uh, so that's the, there's always a rub between all of the things that are nice to have from an environmental perspective and the economics of whether or not a home buyer will actually be able to buy the home if you tack on $75,000 more in cost because you're, you're providing you know, deep, different kind of storm gutters, different kind of flame retardancy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know. Um, and so ultimately, it's going to be local laws, and it's going to be capital requirements that drive the behavior of the real estate market participants. You know, one of the things that uh, was all of the talk you know, at this time last year and has been the talk for so much of the last year uh, amongst investors uh, has been opportunity zones. And mm -hmm. uh, this is, I'm going to tie this back into to ESG because there is a motivation here to bring capital to underserved communities, you know, through uh, uh, through favorable tax treatment. Yep. Um, you know, a, a year has gone by. Where are we with Opportunity Zones today? So I spoke in Detroit, which, you know, by and large, not to overgeneralize, but much of Detroit is an Opportunity Zone. Yep. And the panel that followed my remarks that I moderated wasn't about Opportunity Zones, but you could not talk about it. Um, Interesting comment that somebody made at an event that I was at that said, um, if you look at um, the tax rules themselves, okay, the, the Internal Revenue Code, which is arguably very long, the, the, the number of words or number of pages that address opportunity zones aren't that complicated. There are you know, a couple of paragraphs or a couple of pages in the Internal Revenue Code. What is complicated is when the Treasury Department finally gets to writing the regs and the rules, those tend to be pages and pages and pages and pages. So one of the problems is the Internal Revenue Code was codified, but the rules weren't written, and market participants have been waiting for the rules to come out from Treasury, which has been drip, 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 drip. So that's one of the delays. The other problem is, um, and this is what I hear a lot from folks when the topic opportunity zones comes up. So there are statutory holding periods. So you have to hold something for X number of years um, in order to get the favorable tax treatment. 
just no no different than holding a stock for more than a year to get long-term capital gain versus short-term capital gain. Same kind of concept, okay? Um, the problem is these protracted holding periods that exist in opportunity zones, which are intentional. They wanted the capital to be there and not have it be flight capital. They wanted long-term capital commitment. The problem is sometimes the the statutory holding period to get that favorable tax treatment doesn't line up with the economic um, holding period. So you make be a developer, create value, create an apartment property, um, it's fully rented, and now there's buyers for it, so you want to flip it and sell it to somebody because there is a buyer for it. However, you have to hold it for four more years because that's the requirement for the, uh, to get the favorable tax treatment. That doesn't necessarily sync up. So I think one of the challenges, and this is why people are waiting for the regs, so they can from the tre- Treasury Department to figure out how it's all supposed to work operationally so that they can figure out how to reconcile economic holding periods from statutory holding periods. And I know if, that sounded like a lot of big words, but uh, that, that's basically part of the rub. If you're just joining us, you're listening to a special 2020 Outlook edition of the Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by Wharton. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, and my guest is Mitch Rochelle, partner at PwC and co-publisher of the ULI PwC Emerging Trends in Real Estate Report. Right now, we're talking about opportunity zones. So bottom line, Mitch, have we seen capital deployed? Uh, Does it happen in 2020? And is it finding its way into what we might think of as underserved neighborhoods? Um, The answer is yes, because when I visit, Sam, those underserved neighborhoods, there seems like there are a lot of developers circling around them looking to deploy capital for the express reason of not the favorable tax benefit, but because they, they, they believe in the mission. Um, but it's just the opaqueness of the rules that's slowing them down. Um, there were there were a lot of there's a lot of chatter in Detroit about opportunity zones, and um, there was a, you know Cleveland, Baltimore. I mean places that I've been in the last 18 months that are opportunity zone um, heavy, and there seems to be capital lining up. It's just that um, it's just going to take longer than people may have hoped to get all of the stars and moons aligned to get that capital deployed. Are we seeing deals happen that wouldn't be viable without the favorable tax treatment? Um, great question. I, I've asked that same question of opportunity folks, opportunity zone folks. That's why I said it was a great question, Sam, because I've asked the same question. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I find that you get different answers in public than you get in private. Okay, and, and one of the reasons for that is in some of these underserved communities, there's some trust breakdown between those who benefit from the investment and those who are making the investment, because I think in many of these communities, a lot of capital has come in the past and made promises and not made good on them. So you have to kind of go the extra mile and be very, very local and be very transparent around it to gain trust. Um, so think about it. 
you have a developer who's promising housing. You also have a developer that's promising other infrastructure, uh, like a supermarket that may not exist in that community. In order to have you know the rooftops make sense, you probably need the other kinds of retail and and you know maybe even open space and other things that may be required by local zoning. And um, a lot of the folks there that would certainly benefit from it and and look forward to those opportunities to you know maybe own a home maybe you know rent uh, in you know market rate housing um that doesn't exist in that market whatever it whatever it may be have have suffered from some broken promises in the past so um i think that's why you get different answers in 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 a public forum than you get in a private forum because a lot of the developers are working at the ground level literally trying to build trust in the community to make sure the project's successful well you've mentioned you know uh, people who want to own or or rent homes in neighborhoods and that's a, a perfect segue into my next question um you know in in some of the most successful um and and prosperous cities around the country we've seen a real erosion of affordability. And, and in places like New York uh, and elsewhere in the country, I think we've seen you know, a, a, a popular or political response at the local level in the form of rent control mm-hmm. or uh, you know, rent, um, uh, r- rent stabilization. Uh, you know, I, I think in a lot of cases, um, if not most, we've seen that take forms uh, that are long-term counterproductive. Uh, to housing affordability goals. Mm-hmm. Um, where are we right now? Because I know sort of you know, issues around rent control and, and ultimately are wanting to make sure that everyone has access to relatively affordable housing. You know, the, 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 that's a shared goal. Uh, but what are we seeing happen around the country? Why is it a, a theme here in the report? Yeah, it's very timely that you say that. So, and for those of you driving, you'll have to do this when you get, you're not driving. But on page 12 of the report, there's a chart that is a map of the United States that's color-coded by all of the different types of rent control stabilization regulations that are being imposed. California has legislation out there, and it's not the only state. What's interesting is, and I'm going to have to do this very carefully because I'm talking to a Ph.D. economist, and I'm going to talk about economics, so I'm worried I'm going to get this (laughs) wrong, Sam. Okay, But housing affordability is a simple case of supply and demand. And since we haven't, for almost a decade, created enough new supply to keep pace with the formation of households, and statistically, a household formation is when children move out of their parents' homes, okay? we, we, so we have high demand in the form of household formations, and we have low supply in terms of new additions to stock. What's happened is prices have gone up. So um, that's what's creating this affordability challenge. The solution that's been proposed by um, government or those seeking to be in office of putting regulatory constraints or caps on the amount of rent that a property owner can charge. I said this before on the air, so I'll say it again on your air. That's solving a problem with a new problem. The, the very incentives that the private sector um, need to invest more capital meaning building new supply, is knowing that they can get a return on that investment. And if the return on the investment is curtailed by only being able to charge so much, so much rent, um, then they're not going to create that supply, which means we're not going to solve the affordability problem. We can only solve the affordability problem with more supply. We're not going to solve it by curtailing rents. And um, the thing that nobody's talking about in all of this housing affordability crisis 
is the fact that the land component is the thing that's been escalating the most, and then the labor component has been escalating. So the, the input costs that a builder has have been going up. I always call it land, <laughs> lumber, and labor, lumber being the proxy for all of the building materials that have gone up in price. So goods imported from China maybe have gone up by 25% more because they're subject to tariffs. Um, so if the input costs are going up, a landlord or a developer is going to want to be able to charge more rent. Um, so we're, we're, that's not working. So if you could attack the land component and find a way, if government could find a way to take land that exists that they have on their metaphoric balance sheet and make it available for new construction or new development, then and they could somehow subsidize that land component to a developer, I would bet that those developers would build. Right. So we're looking at a scenario where, as you described, sort of, you know, the efficient allocation of land, you know, becomes important here. Uh, the fact that, uh, you know, we've got rising costs for materials are, you know, perhaps less in our control. Um, and outcomes in the labor market, you know, although the peak of the housing market was 15 years ago now, hard to believe, mm-hmm. um, you know, we've not seen a lot of people come into the labor market to become skilled construction labor. Um, we've lost them. We, lost, we, we were losing... Uh, Construction workers, uh, when the market was falling apart at the rate of fourteen, uh, forty-five thousand a month, and we've never created a month with forty-five thousand new construction workers. So we're we're still down construction workers. If you're just joining us, you're listening to a special 2020 Outlook edition of the Real Estate Hour on SiriusXM Business Radio. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, and my guest is Mitch Rochelle, partner at PwC and co-publisher of the ULI PwC Emerging Trends in Real Estate Report. Mitch, what about allowing for higher density uh, housing to be built near major transportation hubs? I hear that there's some element of nimbyism here, not in my backyard, um, The uh, where you know, part of the solution might be higher density, but some neighborhoods Neighborhoods are are are, uh, are are exerting some opposition or some hesitancy to allow this to happen. Yeah, um, higher density near transportation hubs solve some of the infrastructure problems that we talked about before. Uh, NIMBYism is like I think. Whenever the first home was built in biblical times, uh, the person who wanted to build a house next door probably complained, "Not in my backyard." Like, I, I so NIMBYism has been around forever. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, you know, you and I are both fans of traveling to Israel, and I'm sure, um, I'm sure somewhere where Adam and Eve lived, uh, there was somebody who said, "Don't build there." <laughs> right. So, <laughs> the so uh, when I, we're so I, I, go ahead. No, 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 please. I, I, I don't think it's a new phenomenon, and um, I, I think that um, just as I said in opportunity zones, builders need to build trust, I think that goes for new construction anywhere. I think in this day and age of transparency with social media and the like, I think developers need to up their game in terms of delivering their message to the community about the benefits of whatever they're building. Um, Because the rumor mill is the thing that you can never control when there's a proposed anything in any community. And I don't think developers have really upped their game in terms of how they message the community about the benefit 
of whatever it is that's being built as opposed to detriment. Yeah, with that in mind, I wish we had time today to talk about um, you know, what happened with Amazon HQ2 in New York City, issues around messaging and the perception of the value proposition yep. when, a, when a new uh, firm, when a new industry you know, comes into town or, or evaluates an opportunity to, to come into town and create you know, really high-quality jobs. Uh, one of the things I am going to ask about in the time that we have left, because I hadn't seen the term before, there's a whole section on demographics, hipsterbia. Did I pronounce it correctly, and what is it? Okay, so every year in Emerging Trends, we try to coin some phrase, if we can, that goes becomes a big thing. And we are very proud that years ago we uh, coined 18-hour city, although others may take credit for it. I remember being in the conference room when it was said for the first time. So we try to come up with a new one, hipsterbia. All that means is, listen, fact of the matter is when um, new home buyers are moving to the suburbs for the first time, um, the suburbs that they want to live in to raise their families may not be the same type of suburb that they grew up in. Um, so there are things that they want in those communities that um, are more urban-like and thus more hip, whether it be vegan restaurants, farm-to-table restaurants, just an abundance of kale. I don't know what it is. Uh, <laughs> places to get your beard groomed. I don't know. Uh, can I layer more stereotypes and hipster stereotypes? Yeah, I don't have a beard, but I am vegetarian, so <laughs> yeah. I guess I'll be very happy in this new suburb. Yeah, if you move to like uh, you know the river towns in Westchester County, Sam, you can find tons of tons of farm-to-table vegan restaurants. But but. Uh, all kidding aside, I think it's taking urban elements, some of it like walkability, some of it like amenities, like the restaurants that I was making fun of, and having it's not the white picket fence, uh, leave it to beaver kind of suburbs of the 50s that many of us grew up in, and it's a more young, vibrant um, cultural experience, and those suburbs are hip. So we called them hipsterbia. Do we see uh, real estate investors, developers responding to the call? They're trying to, um, but they can't seem to get people to show up for the focus groups unless they have the right kind of microbrew beer and you know, coffee or something. No, I, you are just I'm on it with the with stereotypes today, late, Mitch. It's late in the day, Sam. And <laughs> I'm just trying to get as much hate mail as I possibly can from your <laughs> listeners. Um, but the um, the fact of the matter is, um, more of this has to do with taking existing stock. So what's interesting, and this is not a stereotype; um, it's more factual. Um, a lot of the younger families are interested in buying um, something that may be older, not cookie cutter, not new development, that um, needs some TLC. I mean, there's basically a, an entire generation of potential home buyers who've been watching television shows about fixing up homes, and they want their opportunity. Um, and I, you know, you used to go to a Home Depot on a on a weekend. And uh, now you're seeing families in Home Depots, um, you know, buying the materials because they're doing a lot of it themselves. And um, that's sort of part of the experience these days, too. So I don't think it's as much building new stock that is designed to appeal to a younger demographic. I think it's more about the younger demographic buying existing stock and turning it into something that they can call their own. 
Right. And, you know, I think, you know, in a future show, I'd also uh, like to raise the question of what's happening with boomers at the other side of mm. uh, the demographic spectrum, because I know you go into great detail about that as well, as well as technology and a whole other set of issues that we didn't get to today. Mitch, thank you again so much for joining me to talk about the report. Sam, thanks for having me as always. And to you uh, hipsters on the uh, listening in your cars, uh, don't hate me. I was just kidding. Mitch, it was fantastic. That was Mitch Rochelle, partner at PwC and co publisher of ULI Emerging Trends in Real Estate. You can find the report at PwC as well as the ULI website, www.uli.org. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 